is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Mark had a problem getting, uh, getting up late in the morning. He was always late for work. After a few weeks of this, the boss called him, uh, called him in and he said, listen, uh, you're, gonna, you're just going to have to go unless you do something to get here on time. And so Mark went to his doctor to see if his doctor could help him. And his doctor gave him a pill to take when he went to bed. And so he took a pill that night and he got, uh, he got a great night's sleep, actually was up before the alarm in the morning. And after a leisurely breakfast, he, he drove into work. He was really proud of himself. He said, Mr. Johnson, the pill my doctor subscribed for me actually worked. I'm here on time. And the boss said, well, that's all fine, but where were you yesterday? (laughs) Not everyone's on time. Steve Cleary was uh, 50 years old, retired Navy in his second career, but he was having a hard time getting to work as well on time. He was 5, 10, 15 minutes late. However, he was a good worker and the boss didn't want to get rid of him, so he called him in with this quandary. He said, Steve, um, I have to tell you, I love your work ethic. You're top class. You do a top class job, but you're being late so often is quite a worry. Yes, I realized that, said, uh, had said Steve, I'm working on it. Now the boss said, I appreciate that, and you're a team player. It's odd, though, you coming in late like this all the time. I, I know you're retired from the Navy. What did they say to you when you came in late then? Steve replied, they said, good morning, Admiral. <laughs> <laughs> well, Admiral Cleary was late, maybe, but the Bible says that King Jesus is not late. Never has been late. I don't think ever will be late. For those of us who follow Jesus, Christmas is the first advent of his coming. It's when we recognize that Jesus came the first time. Last Sunday, we talked about his second advent. We talked about his second coming. But Christmas is coming. Christmas is coming. And so I thought it'd be good for us, not just this week, but maybe the the next uh, four weeks, actually, counting today, to remember some things about the first coming of Jesus. It's always a good reminder for us. Now, the word Messiah in our Bibles, I know many of you know this, but it's the word uh, anointed king. That's what it means, anointed king. When you see Messiah, that's the Hebrew word. When you see the word Christ, when we say Jesus Christ, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It simply means anointed king or special king. And uh, the fact that God was going to send a special king is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and in Jewish belief. Though some Jews today doubt that God's going to send a Messiah, a special king, belief in his coming has always been prevalent among among Jewish people. Maimonides was the greatest Jewish philosopher of the medieval period. He's still widely read today, all right? And he wrote 13 articles of the Jewish faith, which I'm assuming Jews still look to these with, uh, with some degree of authority. But the 12th article that Maimonides wrote was the coming of Messiah. He wrote, he said, I believe with a full heart in the coming of the Messiah. And even though he may tarry, I will wait for him on that day on any day, on any day that he may come. In the concentration camps of, uh, of the Second World War, it was said that many of the Jews, as they went to the gas chambers, would be singing about the coming of Messiah. Now, throughout the ages, the Jews or the Jewish tradition affirmed numerous things about Messiah. Here's, let me tell you what they affirmed about him. They said he'd be a descendant of King David, the special king. 
He would gain sovereignty over the land of Israel and gather the Jews there from the four corners of the earth. He would rebuild the temple and restore temple worship and restore Jewish, Jewish folks back to the full observance of the Torah law. He would bring peace to the whole world and he would change the nature of the world, resurrecting all men, bringing to fruition Isaiah's vision of a messianic age in which the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the calf with the young lion, Isaiah eleven six. But Maimonides, he believed that Isaiah's language was, was figurative. In other words, what he believed was when it talked about the lion and the lamb laying down together, that that was talking about lion nations and, and Israel. They would lie down together. In other words, he saw it as a, a metaphor of how nations would treat one another in the future. Nachmanides, who came after him about a century later, rejected Maimonides' rationalization, and he asserted that Isaiah meant precisely what he said, that the Messianic age, that in the Messianic age, even wild animals would become domesticated and sweet-tempered. And by the way, that's kind of what I believe too. How did, the, how did the Jews come to these conclusions? How did they come to these conclusions that God would even send a special anointed king? Where did that come from? Well, it came from the fact that the prophets foretold it, the prophets predicted it, the prophets even promised it. Let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, we find Moses saying this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord our, your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God, to see this great fire any longer, so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I commanded him. I will, I will hold him accountable, whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Some Jews believe that the prophet was to be different than the Messiah, but many believe that this is a, a prophecy concerning this, this Messiah King, that he'd be a prophet. Micah said this of him, and you'll be familiar with this verse, But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Isaiah probably gave the strongest prophecy concerning this king. Here's what he said about him, and again, you'd be familiar with this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and the peace and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it in justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Are you beginning to see why the Jews were looking for this special king? Here's Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23. Now, there are many, many other prophecies in the Old Testament about this coming special king. And so the Israel, so the Jews, they understood this to be the promise of God. And so they were looking for a righteous king, a good king, a saving king to come. Now, as we know, because we are, we are followers of Messiah, 
when, when God sent forth his anointed king, his Messiah, many of the Jews didn't believe that he was the one. They rejected the one that we believe was the special king that God had promised. And I think in part, you know, when we try to answer the question, why did the Jews reject this special king? Why did they reject the one we think was the special king? I think in part it was because this, this special king came saying, listen, your Jewishness isn't what matters. It's the fact that you have a relationship with God and you love God and you trust God and you follow God. And he called them to account and he said, your Jewishness isn't what makes you right with God. It's your heart that makes you right with God. You think the outside matters. The outside doesn't matter. God could raise up Jews from these stones, right? It's not, that's not, that's not what matters. What matters is your heart. And I think that was one of the major reasons why they rejected him. Now, not every Jew rejected Jesus in his claim to be the special anointed king. Uh, many followed him. Jesus said this of them. He said, everyone, I quote him, everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. So here's my thought on that. Here's what Jesus was saying. Everyone who already had a relationship with God, everyone who already loved God and was following God, when they were introduced to Jesus, they recognized him for who he was, the special king that God had sent. The faithful Jews who loved God followed him by faith and drew near to Jesus. But those who didn't, the Bible says that, that God didn't draw them. He actually hid himself from them. He talked in parables. You remember why? So they wouldn't believe, so they wouldn't understand. And you need to understand that's a judgment from God. God is seeking to keep them from understanding the truth as a judgment from him. But everyone who received Jesus as, the, as this special anointed Messiah, every, every Jew who believed in him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Now, if we go back in time, back to Abraham, the founding, the founding father of the Jewish nation, right? You'll remember that God made a promise to him. And you'll remember what the promise was? He said to Abraham, he said that you, out of you, or, or you yourself will be a blessing. Your, your people will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, for those of us who follow Jesus, who believe that Jesus is the promised king, we understand that the promise that God made to Abraham that day was that Messiah wasn't just coming for the Jewish people, but that he was coming for all people, Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus would be this a special king, not just for them, but he'd be a special king for all of us. By the way, I think that's probably another reason why they rejected him as they began to understand that Jesus wasn't just a Messiah for them, but that he was a Messiah or a special king for all of us. I think that'd be another reason they, they rejected him. So, so we believe that when God promised Abraham that th through you I'll bless all the nations, what he was talking about was that the king, the special king that was coming, would be for all the nations. And that would include us as, as Americans or any Gentile person, right? And, and I realize some Americans are Jewish in nature, but uh, or by heritage. So here's the question for us. Why did it take 1,800 years? Because it's 1,800 years between Abraham and that promise and the coming of Jesus. Why 1,800 years? This may surprise some of you. Maybe all of you know it. I don't know. But the Bible says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Now, your Bible may have said in the fullness of time, if you're not reading from a CSB. Uh, I just read you says the completion of time. It's from the Greek word pleroma, which means to be filled up. And the word was often used like this. The basket was pleroma. The basket was filled up. Or the cargo of the ship was pleroma. It was filled up. And, and so here's what Paul means. When time was filled up, but we don't think of time like that, right? It's filling up a basket or something. So, so what it means in this context would be when, when time was complete, when time was full, when the time, here it is, when the time was right, God sent forth his son. Here's what I want you to understand. When Jesus came, those 1800 years after the promise to Abraham, it was the right time. It was the perfect time. So here's a question for us this morning. It's actually something I want to address for a few minutes is why might that have been the right time? Why was that the perfect time? Why was that the completed time for Jesus to come? Because that's what Paul says. This was the fullness of time, the completed time. Jesus came. Why, why was that the perfect time? Well, you know, why didn't Jesus, why didn't God send Jesus now? I mean, if he did it now, right, every miracle would be on TV within <clears throat> just a couple of minutes around the world. We'd all be able to see why wasn't this the perfect time? Uh, time. Well, if it was, we'd all say it's fake news or computer generated or something like that, right? No, seriously, <clears throat> let's be honest. None of us know why it was the fullness of time. We don't know. But here's, I want to give you four reasons why it may have been the fullness of time. And I think they'll help us be encouraged with the coming of Jesus. Here's, here's the first reason that may have been why he came when he did. People were expecting him then. People were actually looking for the Messiah in that day. People aren't looking for the Messiah today. Even the Jews aren't looking for Messiah today. Most of them, except for maybe the Orthodox Jews, have all but rejected the coming of Messiah. They don't believe Jesus was it. But they were expecting him that day. Jesus came to a nation that was looking for him. Rome had overtaken them. They were looking for Messiah. To They, had, they associated Messiah with freeing them from political oppression. So they were all ears. They were all looking. So when John the Baptist came and said, listen, I'm the precursor to the Messiah. He's, he's just behind me. The Bible says that many people followed him. Many people were repenting of their sins and preparing their hearts for the coming of Messiah. When Andrew asked Peter, he said, could this be the Messiah? The implication is that Andrew and Peter and others had been talking about it and looking for it. And so when Andrew says, could this be him? I mean, it just goes to show you they're looking for him. Here's a couple of things you may not have known. 35 years before Jesus, Judas of Galilee came forth leading a resistance against Rome in 6 BC. Judas formed a group known as the Theocratic Nationalists who preached that God alone was the ruler of Israel and urged that taxes, uh, no taxes should be paid to Rome. Judas is mentioned in Acts chapter 5, where Gamaliel, who's trying to convince the Jews to leave the followers of Jesus alone, you remember he said, remember Judas who came along? Remember Thutis who came along? They, they gathered a force behind them, but in the end, it came to nothing. And it'll be the same way now. These people who claim that Jesus is the the Messiah, just leave it alone and it'll go away. They'll die out if he's not really the Messiah. So there was Judas in 6 BC, just 25 years before Jesus. There's a, and, and historically, we don't know whether, whether Judas and, and Thutis, whether they actually claimed to be Messiahs or just their followers said they were the Messiah, but they were Messiahs of Jesus' day. 
Yeah, Thutis, we don't know anything about him except what we... There is a Thutis in history, but he doesn't fit this Thutis, so it's believed to be another uh, Thutis. And we don't know anything about him except what Acts 5 says, and that he claimed to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. That's what Gamaliel said about him. All right. Then there was Simon of, of Perea. Jo, Josephus wrote about him. There was Simon, who had been a slave of King Herod, but in other respects, a comely person of a tall and robust body. He was one that uh, was much superior to others in his order and uh, had great things committed to his care. This man was elevated at the disorderly state of things, and he was so bold as to put a diadem on his head while a certain number of people stood by him, and by them he was declared to be a king, and he thought himself more worthy of that dignity than anyone else. He would be killed in battle and beheaded, and nothing would come of, of Simeon. So here we have Judas and Thutis, and Simeon, all claiming to be messiahs. And here's my point. I want, here's the point I want to make. Is, man, they were ripe. They were ripe for people claiming to be messiah. Because, because everybody was looking for one. Everybody was looking for the messiah to lead them out from under, under Rome. These men promised much, and they had a pretty big following behind them. Imagine Jesus coming today. Nobody's looking for him. Nobody cares. Not, I'm not talking about us. I'm talking about the world's not looking for a Messiah today. And even the Jews to this day, they're not really looking anymore for, uh, for a Messiah. Here's an old Jewish story told, uh, tells the story of a Russian Jew who was paid a ruble a month by a community council to stand at the outskirts of the town so that he could be the first person to greet the Messiah upon his arrival. When a friend said to him, boy, that pay sure is low, the other man said, true, but the job is permanent. <laughs> so they, didn't, they don't believe. That it's, it's, along the way, Jews in particular, but the world in general, they're not looking for Messiah. But I think the fullness of time was Jesus came when people were looking for him. Here's number two. Another reason why this might have been the completion of time is because for the first time, there's a connected empire that draws the whole world together. The Roman Empire may have been why they were, why they were looking for uh, a Messiah, but the empire is also probably the reason why it was the perfect time or the completed time or the fullness of time. And here's what I mean by that. For the first time in history, there's the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And yeah, there were skirmishes here and there, but by and large in the world from, from uh, Marcus Aurelius, uh, excuse me, from Caesar Augustus to Marcus Aurelius, 27 to 180 uh, AD, 27 BC to 180 AD, there was pretty much peace in the Mediterranean. Yeah, there was the, there was the Jewish war of 70 AD where, where Israel is destroyed, Jerusalem is destroyed. But by and large, there's no invasion coming from without. There's no civil war from within. And so there's pretty much peace in the Roman Empire for those years, which meant travel was really easy. There was religious liberty to some degree. In the, in the Roman Empire, all you had to do was say, Caesar is Lord, and you could pretty much worship any way you wanted. Which is why, by the way, Romans 10 is so insightful, and it's also why the Christians had such a hard time, because they were unwilling to say, Caesar is Lord. Their, their mantra, their statement was what? Jesus is Lord. But there was pretty much religious liberty. At first, they were just a sect of Judaism. And so they, they had rel relatively peace in those early days. The Roman Empire brought sea routes. Remember all the sea travel that Paul did? 
They destroyed piracy. Roads in the empire were connecting this place and that place. So there was travel and there was commerce. The gospel could easily travel from Jerusalem when, uh, when the Roman Empire was there. There was a unified system of commerce and trade. So you could travel and your money worked everywhere. There was the common Greek culture and the common Greek language. So whether you, wherever you went, if you spoke Greek, you, you, could, you could communicate. These are fertile times for, for the gospel. These were fertile times for the proclamation of the, of the message of the kingdom of God. Now, the world is much more connected today, isn't it? Instantaneously connected. But, but it seems reasonable to me, it seems reasonable to me that to, to see this connectivity for the first time in the world through the Roman Empire, it seems reasonable that this played a part in why God said this is the fullness of time. Here's the third reason it might have been the, the great time is because the, the interconnectedness of generations of families. The Western civilization that we live in, that we know of, with its rugged individualism and, and, its, and its focus on an immediate family of mom, dad, and children, that didn't exist. I mean, families were extended families. People, and again, that's not to say that this never happened, but families often lived together in close proximity. And so it wasn't just me and my wife and my children. It was me and my wife and my children and my parents and maybe my grandparents and my children and their children. We all lived in very close proximity. So the Greek word, which is pervasive in the New Testament, oikos, which means household, isn't really referring to just a dad, mom, and two kids. It's referring to that extended family, that that we're the father, the oldest father is the patriarch of of that family, of that oikos. And so multiple generations live together. So imagine this, somebody in the family gets exposed to the gospel and they become believers. Where do they go? Where is their sphere of influence? Their sphere of influence is their extended oikos. It's their extended family. And you know what? People don't just write you off when you're in your oikos, when you're in your family, and they listen to you, whether they agree with you or not, they're, they're from the beginning, they're not necessarily going to write you off. And so, and so they're listening at this point. And, and when dad believes, listen, and when the dad believed, so much more the family was connected. So here's an example in Acts 16. You remember the jailer who's got Paul and uh, I think it was Silas under, under lock and key and, and they get freed, but they don't run away. He's about to commit suicide. And, and they said, don't kill yourself, man. We're right here. And, and the Bible says that the jailer believes and he goes home and he, cure, and he, he tends to their wounds. And, and then it says, and the jailer believed and he and his whole household were baptized. Well, we look at that and we argue over today. See, infants are baptized. His whole household is baptized. Or we say his whole household, no, means all the adults in his household. Here's the point I want you to see about that statement is that the gospel permeated his whole household. And I think the reason, primary reason, is because he was most likely the patriarch of that family. I know I'm speculating there. But regardless, I mean, the gospel permeated his household. It went out to everybody in his extended family. And, and here's, if I could just give this side note. The influence of a dad and a father in a family is, is really, guys, it's incalculable. And we see it all through the New Testament. But man, I think we see it even today. As the father goes, his influence is massive. As the father goes, so goes the family. Dad, there's so, dad, there's so much riding on you. And again, ladies, moms, I, I, I'm not trying to impugn. I'm not trying to elevate men as better than women. I'm not trying to say any of that. I'm simply saying that the role of father in the family 
It's just, um, it just cannot be calculated, the impact of a dad on his kids. And again, I'm not trying to take it away. Man, I, when, when my kids were little, I always thought that I'd be the go-to person. I did. I always thought they'd come to me. They don't come to me. They go to Ann. They call Ann. It's irritating. It's irritating. I mean, I'm, I'm being honest, man. It's irritating. Then my kids are listening. It's irritating. So, but they call mom in the mornings. They call mom in the evenings. You know when they call dad? If they've got a problem. Which I'm glad they call me when they got problems. But, 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 um, but here, but he, but nonetheless, so moms, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish your role at all. But you know, even statistically, statistically, if a mom begins to follow Jesus in an unchristian home or a non-Christian home, and the mom begins to follow Jesus, and again, I can't remember the percentages. I just thought of this this morning. I didn't bother to look it up, but I remember these statistics. They were pretty overwhelming. That if a mom begins to follow Jesus, it's like there's a 35 percent chance. I'm making up the numbers, so. Don't hold me to the numbers, but like a 35% chance that the children will also follow Jesus. But if you flip that role and the dad begins to follow Jesus and not the mom, it's like, it's like 70%. It's like, it's like a huge number more. And why is that? I mean, I don't know why that is other than to say, dads, your, 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 your influence isn't categorical. It's not absolute, but it's extremely pervasive. And so you need to, you need to, guys, you need to, you need to throw that into the hopper when you're living your life out as a father. Your, your role is so important. Back to my point. My, my point is that I think the, the, the connected family of this day is why Jesus, why God chose this time for Jesus to come. Because the gospel would just be promoted through these family networks. Rodney Stark wrote a book, um, called The Rise of Christianity. And I have no idea how he got to these statistics, but I'm going to quote them anyway because they're self-serving. But it's estimated in 40 AD there were a thousand believers at 0.0017% of the Roman Empire. By 350 AD, Rodney says there were 34 million believers for 56.4% of the population. What accounts for such exponential growth? And we know there was exponential growth. Whether, whether his numbers are right or not, I, I don't know. But we know there was exponential growth in the church. How did it come about? Well, it had to come about, I think, because they're looking for Messiah. They're looking for Messiah. There's this Roman connectivity that allowed the gospel message to go out. And then there is this, this connectivity within the family that just, I believe, propelled the gospel. Uh, through the generations. Now, let me bring, let me give you my fourth and final reason. And these are just Jimmy's reasons. Like I said, only God knows. But I, I thought you might be, you might find these interesting and maybe thought provoking. So here's a final reason why, why um, Jesus may have come when he did. Because it was a time of religious, it was a time of, of great belief in God and gods, but a time of real religious emptiness in the hearts and lives of the people who believed in these gods. The world that Jesus was born into, I think, was religiously empty and meaningless, and though lots of people believed in God. So let me give you an example. The Greeks and the Romans had a pantheon of gods. The Greeks, Greeks had... I don't know how many gods it was, but their top 12, some of their top 12 were Zeus. You'll remember, the, I just chose the ones that I knew you'd know. Zeus, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, Athena, Hermes, Poseidon, right? You've heard those names. Marvel makes movies about these guys. 
The Romans had their gods. They had, here's, they had 12 primary ones as well. Here you, and again, I chose the ones I knew. Jupiter, Juno, Mars. I couldn't know if I remember Juno or just Juno from the email, but Juno, Mars, Mercury, Neptune, Venus, Apollo, Diana. We all know Diana, right? She's big and she was big in Ephesus, right? And so they had their gods. But here's the thing about their gods. They didn't care for you. Their gods weren't about you. In fact, none of their gods would sacrifice themselves for you. In fact, their gods were notorious for using humans for their own entertainment and their own pleasure. The idea that there's a God out there who created everything, who's the one true and only God, he created everything, and that God actually loves you. And that God actually cares about you. And that God actually entered into this world to submit to death so that he could I might arrest it on our behalf. The idea that God would give you a new heart and change your life and, and give you freedom over things that have bound you and, and would take away your shame. I mean, these ideas were radical. And here's my suggestion. I think the gospel message had such a receptivity amongst people is because it was so captivating to them because they lived in a world with lots and lots of gods, but yet, but none of these gods cared for them and none of these gods loved them. And here, here comes the good news that God has a kingdom. God's creating a kingdom and he's inviting you to be a part of the kingdom. And this king actually loves you and actually cares about you and actually wants to be involved in your life. Remember, there's no, there's no secularism in that day or very little of it. There, you know, if there are atheists, there's probably lots of people who disregarded, you know, the gods but there were probably very few that didn't believe in them. Jesus enters into our human race with a rescue mission. And, uh, and man, I, I think many folks found that captivating and put their faith in Jesus. That isn't to say that everybody followed Jesus. They didn't. The Jews rejected Jesus, as I already said, because he called them out, thinking that their election as Jews was what got them in. When really, it wasn't that. It was their heart with God that got them in, that had gave them a relationship with God. And because Jesus came along saying that he was, you know, his followers came forward and said, no, Jesus is Messiah for everybody. The Gentiles rejected him because those that did, those that were looking for, truly looking for God, they recognized God and what Jesus brought, and they put their faith in him. But there was a lot of people who rejected God because they would say, no God would do that. I mean, they're, they're, they're operating out of a Greco-Roman view of God. No God would do that. And so remember, remember, I showed you one time the graffiti from a wall back then where they've got a donkey uh, uh, crucified on a cross. And they said, this is the God of, I can't remember the, the man's name. It was graffiti that survived. In other words, the, the, the idea that God would sacrifice himself for humanity instead of using humanity, the Bible says that, was that the stumbling block to the Greeks? I believe that was the stumbling block to them. They, they could not, they could not buy into that. And so for those reasons, and maybe many more that you could think of, this was the fullness of time. Jesus didn't get here late, everybody. He got here when God wanted him to get here. And, and what did he do when he came here? I'd like you to open your Bibles to Galatians 4. And we're going to take just a few minutes and walk through 4, 4 through 4, 7. All right, so open your Bibles to Galatians 4. Just so you can check me out. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. But in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, I'll read it to you again. And, and again, I'm, I'm kind of ripping this out of its bigger context, but, but I think the context, it, it, it works for what I want to do this morning. 4.4 4 says, When the time came to completion, 
Your translation may say in the fullness of time, God sent his son. People try to pit God the Father against the Son. And they say, you know, the, the Father is harsh and austere. Jesus is kind and loving. But do not forget, it's the Father who sent Jesus. And God is one being, one God. He's not two beings. He's not three beings. He's one being, three persons. And the one God sent Jesus. He sent him in the fullness of time, but the Bible says before the foundation of the world had ever been laid, you know, in the mind of God, Christ had already come for us. Christ had already died for us. Christ had already given up his life for us. You know, before the foundation of the world, this had been the plan that God had enacted. And you cannot pit the Father against the Son, everyone. I get it. When we read the Old Testament, you know, God seems... God seems sometimes harsh and God seems unloving or whatever. And then Jesus comes along and, and, and he's full of love and he seems different. But that's just because we're not rightly understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the Jesus of the New Testament is the Jesus of the Old Testament. And uh, we cannot separate them. God sent forth Jesus in the right time, in the fullness of time. He sent him, the scripture says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born of a woman. He was human. He was human like us. Yes, he was God. Yes, he did not divest himself of his deity. How can that be? I'm not really sure how that can be, but I'm telling you, that's what the church has said. That's what we've believed. And I don't mean the church is in, in Bacon's castle. I mean, the greater church has said, we believe that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't cease to be the second person of the Godhead. But at the same time, he became fully human like us. And that's what Paul tries to tell us. He was born of a woman and he was born under the law. And under the law meant he came here to die. In Adam all die. Jesus came here for the express purpose of dying for us. Why did he die for us? God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came at the right moment to redeem us. Now the word redeem means to buy back. He came to buy us back from the law. Well, what did the law say? The law said that we should die because of our sin. So Jesus came to buy us back from our death. The wages of our sin is death. Jesus came to buy us back from death. How did he do that? He did it by dying for us. He did it by entering into death for us, by taking our death upon himself. You say, Jimmy, how does all of that work? Man, I don't know. I'm just being honest. I don't, I don't know how all that works. All I know is that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to die for us so that he might redeem us from the law. He might redeem us from our death. Along with resurrection and life, Paul says that he adopted us, that we might receive adoption as sons in verse 5. You know, I, I want to talk, I, want, I, want, I think those are kind of like two things. Redeem us, redeem those under the law, and that's redeem us from death, redeem us from, you know, our brokenness and, and, and all. But then the other thing is that he makes us, he gives us adoption as sons, and if I could, I'd like to say the adoption of sons is 
He takes away our guilt and our shame. He takes, he takes all that's bad and, 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 and does something new and good in us and makes us his son. He adopts us. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We have been adopted. We're now children of God. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When you're adopted, everyone, you get something. You get something new when you're adopted. You get a new family name. You get a new dad and a mom. And you get an intimate relationship with a parent that you've never had before, or maybe never had before, when you get adopted. On social media, I was telling the new members uh, connections class this morning, uh, you know, on social media, I've seen some of these videos and uh, man, I mean, I cry, I, I get choked up every time I watch them. And there's these, these videos that people post on social media of a family being in the courtroom and the judge is now pronouncing that these children are now your children and you're their parents. And if you've ever seen any of these, I mean, they just, they rip your heart out in a good way. But the judge makes the pronouncement, you are now and whatever their name is, you are now their children. These are now your parents. And what happens next is in these videos, the parents and the children just melt into each other's arms in tears. And they're not tears of grief. They're tears of joy because now they have a new name. And now they have a new mom and a new dad. And they, and they have something really, really, really good now, I'm not naive. I know that not all adoptions end up well, and, and, and the outcome isn't always good. My, I have two children that want to adopt. And I mean, their, their intent is, is, well, I have one that's intent on adopting, and one I think is intent on fostering. But I want good stuff for them. I, I want those to end good. And God says that Jesus came at the right time so that we might be adopted as sons. And what we get is we get the Spirit of the Son. We get the Spirit of Jesus within us. And God's Spirit is with us, and He's in us. He's not leaving us. And He's guiding us, and He's teaching us, and he's, he's convicting us, and He's helping us. I mean, the Spirit is with us, and that's what we get. And in this relationship with God, He gets to be our dad, our Abba. Do you see that in the text? And, and he, we cry out in our hearts, God sent His Spirit the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And, and I think that's not, that's not the Holy Spirit crying out. That's us crying out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. You know, in, uh, in the Beachy family, Micah's, Micah's kids call him Papa. And every time I hear it, there's just such a tenderness of, about that. You know, uh, there's, there's a tenderness here when it says that we get to cry out, Abba. And it doesn't really feel, I mean, maybe Papa is more tender to us because it's kind of, we, we, we've heard it in our culture, right? We've heard it in our culture, and Abba is not something we really hear in our culture. But, but Abba is, is like a tender name for God. And he says, we get to call God Abba. We get to call God Daddy. Whatever your tier, term of endearment is for your dad, we get to call him that is what he says. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. And one more thing Paul says, not, not only do you get this, 
get this father-son relationship, father-daughter relationship where you get to call God Abba or Daddy or Papa or whatever, whatever, is, whatever is endearing to your heart. You get to call him that. You get to be his son. You get to be his heir. And we, we get to inherit stuff from our parents. Man, I inherited my good looks from my dad. <laughs> my mom watches this. I said that for her. So, mom, I know what you'd say to that. You still have your good looks, right? So uh, that's what my mom would say. And I'm kidding, of course. But, but we are heirs in, in, from our parents, and we, we inherit from them. We do inherit a lot from our parents. Our looks, our, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes from our parents. Maybe our personalities, things like that, things we've learned from them. But, but we also inherit, I mean, we might inherit what they have left over after they die. They might inherit us. We might get there, share it with our siblings. But here he says that we become heirs of God. We get to inherit from God. What do you get to inherit from God? What is it that God is in giving to you through Jesus? Here, here it is, the nature of Jesus in your life. The removal of your shame and your guilt. Resurrected life one day, being a part of his kingdom forever, where righteousness reigns forever. Remember Peter last week? Where righteousness reigns forever. We get to be a part of that. We inherit that. Christmas is coming, and we need to remember that Jesus came at the right time for the right purpose to save us, to rescue us. And so I want to ask you this morning, this is going to be a message where I want to challenge you to respond to Christmas to the first advent of Jesus. By grace, Jesus died and rose again on your behalf. And he's given you some autonomy. And, and you have to respond to him. You, you cannot save yourself, everyone. You cannot save yourself. But that doesn't mean that you can't, you can't say to God, I can't save myself. Will you save me? You can't cleanse yourself from your sin. But you can ask Jesus to cleanse you from your sin. If you're here this morning and guilt is on you and you feel shame, listen, ask Jesus. You can't get rid of your shame or guilt, but Jesus did and can. And all you need to do is ask him and he will. You must be born again, but you can't rebirth yourself. But that doesn't mean you can't say, God, give me the new birth. You can't replace your broken heart of stone. You can't do it, everyone. You cannot do it yourself. But that doesn't mean you can't look to God and say, God, would you give me a, a heart of flesh? Would you give me your heart? I mean, you, you can't do it yourself, but you can. I don't care what anybody says. You can look to God and you can ask him. So here's my, my closing, concluding question. Are you born again? Seriously, are you born again? Do you want to be born again? Do, do you live under guilt and shame of sin? Do you have hope of eternal life? Are you seeking after the Lord? He, he wants you. He wants you to be, belong to him. He came at the right time, just the right time, so that he could be born of a woman, so he could redeem you from death and rescue you and make you a child of God. So this morning, I, I ask you, are you forgiven? Do you have eternal life? Have you been born again? Yeah, this is, this is one of those messages where I'm asking you to... Hey, if you're on the live stream, I just thought of this. If you're watching the live stream, are you born again? Do you belong to the Lord? Listen, you cannot do it yourself. But you can look to the one who can do it and did do it. So I would just like to invite you right now to respond to him. Thank you so much for listening this week. 
If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.